Welcome, everyone, to Butterflies and Bravery. We are recording our 21st episode, if we're keeping track, <laughs> with our counting. ADHD I'm, counting. I'm, I'm your host, Whisper, and my lovely co-host, Miss Jemima Ferris, is with us. Yeah. And our guest today is a very lovely woman whose name is Sarah. We had some fun times the other evenings. We just connected like our first time and we got to know each other a little bit. And it was just, it was so lovely talking with you. So I'm super excited to, to do this interview now today. <laughs> Me too. I'm really excited. Yeah. Thank this you is, so much. Thank fun. you so much for coming on. Cause I know you, you recently went through some tragedy yourself and it might be difficult to talk about. It's such a, an important discussion that we want to have or need to have. And so I appreciate you being here with us. <laughs> of course. I'm yes. so excited. Seriously. It's good to distract yourself sometimes. And this is an awesome distraction. Plus people always tell you that you need to turn tragedy into something positive. And I'm like, I'm so exhausted of trying to do that. But speaking yeah. out is one way that I can do something. I don't know what, but hopefully something positive. So I absolutely love that you all welcomed me on. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I think a lot of it too is, I know for me personally, just knowing that somebody else understands how I feel. I don't know if it's validating or it's comforting, or maybe it's a little bit of both, but just knowing that somebody else has experienced something similar, you can never really understand someone else, but you at least sort of have been where or where they are, then yeah. it's a comforting thing. It's like one of those sense of attachment and sense of community yeah. that you feel. Didn't you say that you were part of one of a, yes. a group like that? Yep. I'm part of a group that we all lost our partners to suicide and we Zoom every week. Each of our stories are somewhat unique, of course, but there is plenty of overlap. And there's certain yeah. things that unless someone's actually experienced it, they're just not going to fully relate. They might relate partially or yeah. they have some similar hardship, but unless you've experienced the same thing, there's just a certain bond there. Whenever you're going through something really hard, you you go through your own life alone. It it just yeah. is what it is. You have to go through everything you go through. But it's really great to have a good support system of people you can just tip on to. Like I said, they don't fight the battle with you. They fight the battle next to you. And that's really important because it can be very lonesome sometimes when you're going through something really hard. Absolutely. And having people that can connect and relate and you can just tip on to them when you need that little extra support is really important because yeah. you do get battle weary from trauma right. and tragedy. For sure. And so, yeah, it makes you feel a little less alone in your difficulties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other really big benefit in speaking out and in hearing other people speak out that I think means so much to me personally is that often when you've grown up with trauma, especially you've grown up in a horrific childhood situation you spend your life having your feelings invalidated ignored pushed down told to squelch told to shut up and so when you come into a place where you do start meeting people that are validating your feelings because of what they've been through themselves it's such a connecting experience and it's really a place where you can start expanding your heart into those spaces that were so empty before so yeah there's lots of wonderful reasons to be able to share even if you haven't 
seen the silver lining yet. Like you said, you don't have to tack a lesson or a good thing. Everything happens for a reason, like that kind of stuff. Like that doesn't have to be tacked on there. Also, it's not true, but it doesn't need to be tacked on there for your story to be a value. I think for a lot of us, it's just huge that we're here. Just the fact that we're here is like a massive accomplishment, a massive success. We're not only here, but we're actually doing something to contribute to the world and to mental health and to awareness. And that's huge. It's huge. Absolutely. It's very huge. Very apropos that September is Suicide Awareness Month. And yeah, so it's a good month to be having some of these uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. I have ADHD. And so my brain splits off and tells a million stories to get to the point. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to refocus me. I don't get upset. I'll preemptively (laughs) apologize if I interrupt or speak (laughs) over anyone. I hate when people do it to me, but I do it to other people all the time because something pops in my head and I get excited to say it. So I'm already going to apologize because I'll probably do that and I will do my best not to, but I'm just throwing out that disclaimer. That is a flaw of my own personality that I'm well aware of. (laughs) I'm generally a polite person almost to the extreme, but I I do that too. I'll get excited and want to start talking. Yes. Yes. It's so annoying. Yeah. There's there's something else that's actually really interesting that I've been learning because I actually just recently come into my ADHD. <laughs> so I've been reading about it and I know that it does present in different ways, especially with, like with the genders, not to blanket everything, but it does with the genders. And one of the things that's really interesting is that apparently an ADHD trait is when someone tells you a story or what something that's going on with them and you tell them your story back a story about yourself. So in the regular world, <laughs> that's really considered brute. Someone comes along and says, oh, my dog is dying. And then your response is, oh yeah, I remember when my dog died. It makes it seem like you're trying to one-up somebody or you're not really listening to them. You're more interested in telling your story. But apparently with people who have an ADHD brain, that's actually just, they're trying to connect, like to trying to tell the person that they completely empathize with them. And it just comes out wrong. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. (laughs) That actually is really interesting because I wasn't aware of that. And I do that all the time. I do that all the time. And I try to pull it back and I'm like, this relates to you. I swear it does. I know how that feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. But anyways, yeah. Interesting. ADHD traits. (laughs) Uh There's a lot Um, of them. There is. So yeah, I guess we'll kick off though. So tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, I'm sure it's difficult, but tell us a little bit about your story. And I I know that you were born and raised in the children of God cult, just like both of us. And your father was a prominent artist, correct? Yep. Yep. My dad did a lot of art. He also wrote music and performed music as well. He recorded. So he was mostly in WS, which was World Services, the top secret homes (laughs) that we would call Selah. So until I was about seven, we lived in these types of homes. Um, And then we integrated into regular communes 
And about two, three years after that, they collected my dad back into WS. And so then visiting or interacting with him was extremely limited after that. I often actually, most of my life did not have a phone number to reach him. We didn't know when we were going to see him. We would maybe have him visit once a year, approximately. When I was nine, I was living in a jumbo home, which is a really large commune in Niteroi, which is in Brazil. It's a twin city to Rio in Brazil. And it was called the HEC, the Hillside Educational Center. And I think we had a range between about 150 to 200 and some people at this commune. And I was nine, I think, when I started going there. I would go home to my mom on the weekends, but I was basically there. A few of my older sisters were there as well, but no parents for the most part. And that's where I lived until I was 12 And then I moved to Brasilia to be with my mom and my younger sisters. When I was 14, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. My mom had health problems for honestly about as long as I can remember. She had asthma. She had severe migraines. She would have blackout spells. She started having miscarriages in her early to mid thirties. She just had a lot of health problems. And so she was constantly under some form of punishment because (laughs) they believe that illness of any sort was God's punishment. So she was often on punishments. And the morning that she went to the hospital, she had six seizures. And my stepdad, he called for the paramedics to come uh, against the wishes of the commune, but they came and they took her and they told me and my sisters, along with all the other young kids that our mom was possessed by demons. And so when she came, I was 14. Very young. And they asked her as she was being loaded into the ambulance, what, what was the name of the demon possessing her? And she said she was afraid. And so they told us that she was possessed by the demon of fear. And when she got home from the hospital, they performed exorcisms on her in order to rid her of her demon possession. Turns out as you my do. my stepdad, yeah, my stepdad, he got doctors to provide their time and their equipment free of charge, raised money so that she could have some further screenings done. And they found a small growth in her brain behind her eyes. This was Brazil 25 years ago. So the equipment that they had access to was not the best. Plus, this was all what people were willing to donate free of charge. And so my mom decided after a bit that she wanted to get actual medical care. And so she left the cult when I was, yeah, when I was 14, a few months after that incident. Yeah, my, it's a long story, but yeah, she did leave we all saw her off. And once she left, we were strongly discouraged from having any contact with her. When she got to the States, it turns out that the cancer was much more prominent than had been viewed on the in the medical facilities in Brazil. It was about the size of an orange cobweb throughout her brain. She had several open brain surgeries. She went through chemo. And about a year into her treatment, I moved to the U.S. because they had reopened the United States for communes. 
And I lived with two of my older sisters in Baltimore, Maryland. I remember my first day arriving in the States. She, it was Thanksgiving day. It was a Thursday mm. morning. And I was like, you have no traffic at eight o'clock in the morning. Like, how <laughs> is that? I came from Rio where you could spend a whole day <laughs> trapped on the Niteroi bridge in mm. traffic, but he's, it's a holiday. And I'm like, what holiday? He's like, Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like the pilgrims and stuff. I knew the story. I didn't realize it was a national holiday. But yeah, we ended up visiting mom a couple times that I was in Baltimore for a year. I turned 16 in the States and that was my first birthday in the U.S. And we visited mom. One of my older sisters stayed behind to help take care of her. And then our commune was closing down and we were given $100 to find our way to another commune. And me and my other older sister she was 19 at the time and I was 16 and she's like a hundred dollars won't get us to see mom because we decided we were going to go see mom first and then yeah. go find our commune. And so at 16, I arranged that we could fly to Chicago and then from Chicago, we could drive from Greyhound to Minnesota on a hundred dollars. So we did that oh, wow. and we spent the last week with her and I was with her when she passed and I would have stayed with family, except our relatives, they didn't feel like family. Yeah. And watching mom pass was very traumatic. But even her You probably passing, didn't know them that well. Because I did not. overseas. Yeah. Yes. I had met both my grandmas once when I was young. My maternal grandma was where mom was staying. And... She had a lot of resentment to the cult, understandably. Us girls represented the cult to her in the moment her daughter was dying. Yeah. And people in grief respond in not the most beautiful ways. And as yeah. mom was taking her final breaths, I remember grandma yelling at us girls that we had killed our mom. And someday one oh of us God. will die from cancer, just like her. So that was very overwhelming at 16. And, mm, oh but I did not cry when she died. I didn't cry at the funeral. I didn't cry for several months. I worked at my first job ever and went to high school for a hot minute, which I love. Grandma was like, no 16 year old is going to live under my roof and not go to school. It was really strange going to school. I had no record of ever being educated. They placed me as a sophomore, which I believe I should have been placed as a junior now that I understand schooling, yeah. but I think they just put me one year behind. But then they started placing me in like pre-college classes and stuff. I was already weird enough and did not <laughs> fit in well that I didn't want to be the 16-year-old taking first-year college classes. And it, this was my first education I'd had since I was about 12 because they pulled right. me out of classes at home because I was correcting teachers in the cult. And I had about two months of math when I was 14. But beyond that, I hadn't had education for at least four years. So yeah. me being put into college classes, I just pick up things easily. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be that weird. But I went back to the cult back in Brazil because I wanted to be with my dad, my sisters that were all back in Brazil. And about... Three months after I got back, I found out I was pregnant. And wow. that's when I knew that I had to leave. 
That was it. I'm like, nope, I can't. I wanted to stay near family, but the minute I knew I was pregnant, that was my family. And that was more important than pressing dad or anything else I needed to leave because as soon as my child was weaned, I knew I would not have the ability to properly protect him from everything. I knew my way around how to get away with stuff in the cult, how to stay on the down low and all that. But (laughs) For my son, I knew I couldn't protect him from everything. He was born in the cult because it did take a while to get paperwork together. My grandparents paid our ticket to leave Brazil the day that he turned two months old and I was just barely 18. And so I came to the States with $50 and a two month old. And that's my as close to a nutshell as I can get with (laughs) my cult stuff. It's so funny because one thing, at least in our particular cult, it's different from different cults, but in our particular cult, one thing that the thread is very common is that they did not want to give us much schooling at all. I remember, I think Berg at one point said like the sixth grade education is all you need to serve God. But what they were very adamant about was reading because they wanted us to be able to read all the missives and letters and all that kind of stuff and the propaganda But the thing that that did, honestly, if you can learn to read, especially nowadays with the internet, but if you know how to read, like pretty much from there on out, you have everything at your fingertips. And for us, because the way we were raised, our personal rebelliousness was getting education. That was how we (laughs) rebelled. It wasn't like dropping out. It was like being able to go in (laughs) to college. That was our rebelliousness. It's just... That's something that so many of our stories have the same things. Like the first thing we want to do is I want to go to school. I want to learn. I want to pick something up, whatever I can. And we're usually pretty good at picking things up pretty fast, gratefully. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My mom, actually, when they pulled me out of classes at 12, she would sneak me books with like history books and geography books and things like that. Because I, I, my rebellion was I wanted to keep learning and I didn't like that they had pulled me out. This is an instance of when I corrected a teacher. Uh, he was <laughs> Brazilian, so English wasn't his first language. So why he was oh, teaching us English, I don't know. But he, when he would come across a word he didn't understand, he'd make us look it up. And he said, this is a great learning experience for all of us. And I'm like, okay, um, sure. But he was reading and this one word, he was like, it created chows. And he's, I don't know this word. Let's look it up. And I'm like, can I just tell you what it means? And also (laughs) it's pronounced chaos. (laughs) And I literally correcting my teachers is what put me on silence restriction. Eventually, I'm like, I can't help that I know more than they do. Right. (laughs) <laughs> it's not my fault. I was being helpful. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, chows. Chows. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is, that is hilarious. Wow. Funny. So then how did you meet your partner? Or what was that whole kind of, how did that come about? My primary focus when I left was raising my son. That was number one. And with limited finances and limited knowledge of the real world, moving to the States was very overwhelming. Everyone speaks English. It's so bizarre. People always ask, what's the weirdest thing? And I'm like, I knew people speak English in the States, but actually experiencing it was very overwhelming. And people don't understand. It sounds strange, but Mm -hmm. that was very overwhelming. And then just, man, trying to raise my son was 
just my main priority. So getting him to all the way through high school and graduating, that was my main priority. And I worked a couple different things. I got into doing hair when my son was about six. I went to school for that. That's my only official education. I got my GED pretty quickly. And I technically got my GED before I would have graduated had I been in high school. I don't know how I passed. I because literally my education on algebra was essentially non-existent. But anyways, I dated a handful of random people, but not anything serious over the years. I had my son. I didn't want to have that revolving door of people coming and going from his life. So I did my best to shield him from any dating I was doing and keep him as close to unaware of my adult life until he was much older. And so I had been single for quite a few years, right around the time he was about to graduate high school. And Mm. Honestly, I've always just preferred being single for the most part. It, it Sometimes having a partner can be a lot of work, even when they're good people. And I did not have the time to split my energy while raising my son. But yeah. um, when he was 17, he made a new friend. My son is very friendly, outgoing and chatty and has all sorts of friends with so many different backgrounds. And I absolutely love that about him. Nice. And <laughs> one day he brought home a new friend who was a 19 year old guy named Jordan. And he was just another one of my son's friends. And to me, he was essentially a kid. I've never dated anyone younger ever. They always are about 10 years older than me is my standard. Mm -hmm. So I did not look at him in any kind of way like that. But they became good friends and we became friends. My son went regularly to a rec center near home and I volunteered there as well. And Jordan worked there through the science museum. And so he and I would work there often and he would spend time at our house playing video games or whatever. And we became friends and he wasn't living in the best situation at the time. He was living Mm -hmm. in a trap house, which is slang for drug house. Mm -hmm. And because he had been kicked out of home right when he turned 18 in the dead of winter. So he needed to find a place to live. And anyways, we needed to move right around the time my son was graduating high school and places are very expensive. And so with my credit history and with his additional income, I'm like, let's all become roommates and get a place together that would help him get out of his negative situation. And we needed the extra financial ability to rent a better place. And so for six months, we were just roommates. My son was getting his first job and we took in sporadically a lot of other young adults in this house. We became the halfway house for young adults that needed a place to go that wasn't their parents, but wasn't completely out in the real world. And we had Oh boy, one, two, three, four, five, six. We had six other young people that came through, maybe more, that would stay for a month or two. Some stayed for about a year. We just, yeah, everyone would contribute to the bills. And, but Jordan was always the one that I could go to that was more of a reliable adult. And yeah. he was 20 at this time. And honestly, one weekend, there, everyone was gone from the house. It was just the three of us. And my son had gone to visit his dad. And he and I just stepped over this invisible line that you don't cross. <laughs> we honestly were just like, this is going to just be fun. We're both single. We're both adults. We can have a little fun. And that's all it will be. Yeah. And 
How old he were you just, at this point? How I was 37 and he had just turned 21. We had both just had our birthdays. Our birthdays are like a week and a half apart. So I'm exactly 16 years older than him, give or take a few days. And so he was 21 and I was 37. And yeah, we, we hooked up and we were like, this is going to be casual, no strings attached. (laughs) And within about two days, we were like, this is not casual. We actually care about each other. We were fighting with ourselves. Like, you don't say I love you this quickly. This is not okay. We're both very independent people. And we were a little disturbed by how attached we became so quickly. (laughs) But we just did. And it clicked. And it was beautiful. It was weirdly so easy. It was so easy to trust him. It was so easy to love him. He was an amazing person. And I think a big reason why we bonded and connected was because he came from his own traumas and his own difficult times. And so while mine is more unusual and unique, I didn't have to explain myself quite so much to him. He would understand. He validated my trauma. He just got me in a very It was just very easy and very natural. And I was Mm -hmm. like, finally, this is amazing. (laughs) And for those years that we were together, it was three and a half years before he passed. So I knew him for a total of five years. It was just, it was an easy spell in my life. I, I like to say it was a little oasis in the troubles. It doesn't mean that things were perfect. I just knew I had a partner that was in my corner and we would face all problems together and all challenges together. And that was really amazing. And yeah, he was awesome. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'll find someone that quite fits me the way that he did. And it did adjust my point of view because I used to be a little judgy about people that dated younger. And (laughs) yeah, all of a sudden I was like, oh, it can work. It can work quite well. I was very mindful that there could be a power imbalance because I am quite a bit older, but that was constantly something that I was mindful of so that I didn't try to manipulate anything or anything like that because I did not want to, I didn't want to have that unhealthy toxicity in such a beautiful relationship. So yeah, Yeah. but uh, you'd be surprised. There are so many people that have a big problem with age gap relationships. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there are unhealthy ones for sure. That goes for any relationship. But yeah, that's basically how we met. I met him through my son. Hmm. Um, That's very interesting. I, I can only speak from my experience, but I feel like a lot of people that have had trauma tend to sort of bond with other people that have had trauma. Am I not mistaken? No, I think you're correct on that. Because I did the same thing. Like my husband had a horrific childhood, horrific. He's been telling me some things and I'm just like, oh my God, I just sit there and cry for days for him because I'm like, how could you do that? And he's like, I can't even say some of the things because they're just too horrible. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of traumas in the world. Ours is not the only ones. And I do think that's a big reason why we bonded and connected Yeah, was a trauma connection for sure. I feel like you feel a little more comfortable with those people because 
you're like, I know that on some level you can understand me. You can at least understand where I'm coming from. Our relationship is a little tumultuous, but he's on the autism spectrum. And that makes things difficult sometimes because I have to understand where he's coming from. And I just don't, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And then he explains it to me and I'm like, okay, see what's happening in your mind is just a hundred percent different. I'm seeing something completely different than what you're feeling and trying to portray. Well, it's very common. I have an autistic son as well, who's wonderful, but it is very common because they process the world differently. Their brain just takes in senses in a different way. Overwhelm is very common. And it's just simply from the exhaustion of having to take in the senses and take in the input on a different level as everybody else. And yeah, that, and that's why often anger does run with autism quite frequently. So it does. They're very explosive. Yep. And you're just like, dude, it's five drops of dressing. I don't understand why you're freaking out and screaming <laughs> and running downstairs and slamming the door. It's, it's five drops of dressing. Just chill, man. But to them, yeah. That's a huge interruption in the sequence of the process of what was supposed to happen. And once yeah. you interrupt that process, forget it. That takes them like a while to just come back to, yeah. okay, I'm here and I'm okay. And it's just a salad and we'll make another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure growing up the way he did, he was, nothing was regulated for him either. Cause he, they have to learn to regulate. Yes. And it know. wasn't. And also like none of his family knows about his trauma. Nobody's ever validated him. I'm the first yeah. person that he's ever told these things to in his entire life. Men feel like they're supposed to be strong and not supposed to yeah, be weak and not supposed to have these feelings. And I'm supposed to be the man and blah, blah, blah. But I think a lot of guys nowadays are coming around to, you know what, I'm a man, but I have feelings. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. For well, sure. that was exactly my experience with Jordan was that he did open up with me about things that he did not ever tell anyone else, including that he had made a suicide attempt. I forget if he was 15 or 16 at the time. I won't go into his nitty gritty past stuff, but he had a lot of troubles that he shared only with me and that his own family was never aware of. And yeah, a lot of men don't ask for help. He made an attempt two months before he died. And when he told me about it the next day, because he stopped himself, but Mm. when he told me the next day and I told him that he needed to get some kind of help, I was too close to him to properly help him. And he told me flat out, black men don't do therapy. And I was like, he was so progressive in his thinking and in so many things. But in that one spot, he just got held up on, I need to be tough. I need to be a man. I can't show this weakness. And it is a problem. And there are women who do this too. This isn't just men. This isn't just the black community. This is across the board. And there's so many people that feel like, They have to be strong enough and they have to manage things for themselves. And the number one most important thing that I think can save someone's life is they have to ask for help. They have to reach out and they have to say there's no perfect cure. They need to know this is something that could be helpful for me. And they need to ask for that thing, whatever it may be. Because if you don't ask, if you don't reach out, if you don't speak up for yourself, no one else knows what's going to be helpful. 
So yeah. many people will try, you throw everything at it until something sticks, but you don't know what's going to stick. The only yeah. person that knows what's going to be helpful is the person going through something. And in my last year of dealing with suicidal ideology myself, I had to explain to someone very close to me who's been my primary support since losing my partner. And I had to explain to her, what you're doing right now is not helpful. This is what's helpful. Please do this or I won't be talking to you about this ever again. And yeah. she adjusted what she, her reaction, and she made that adjustment. And that was wonderful. And it's been helpful. Yeah. But I had to speak up for myself because people default to everyone wants to help and no one knows exactly how, except yeah. the person who's going through that. And yeah. so many men shut off their emotions because society tells them that it's not a good idea to have emotions. Well, and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a catch 22 though, also, because um, going back again to growing up in childhood trauma, you tend to have to rely on yourself very much. You don't, nobody's listening to you. No one's validating you. You internalize everything. So what happens is you lose that capacity to reach out and ask for help. And so it becomes this like vortex. It just sends everybody off the rails because you don't know how to ask for help. And then the person that might want to support you doesn't know how you need help. So it's like one of those things, the ideal situation would be that anybody in our life who understands us on some level and wants to be a support system is to reach out. Many of us from the children of God, we've struggled with suicidal ideation, but I think that has to come from both sides. You have to be able to express what helps you and what doesn't, but there's such a huge importance of someone who wants to be your support system to just reach out. You don't have to know, you don't have to know what's going to fix you, but just to have someone reaching out and say, Hey, are you okay? I haven't heard from you for a couple of days. Just that. And basically a meeting of a, a center meeting, like coming together on that is, is really so important. Yes, so I totally agree. I, I work with a girl and her boyfriend was in a very bad accident yesterday and he actually clinically died on the scene and then they revived him and he's in a coma on life support, but I don't know. I texted her and said, I'm here for you. I said, I don't know what to do. I can't make it better, but I'm here. And I think just knowing that somebody's there and that somebody yeah. cares is, is a big thing because otherwise sometimes you just feel so alone in, yeah. in your grief and your pain. And you're like, nobody else yeah. understands me and nobody feels this way. And even if they don't just having somebody to be there for you, yeah. that, that you're like, you know what, just come and talk to me, cry on my shoulder. You don't even have to say anything. <laughs> just let them cry on your shoulder. Just let yeah. them know that you are there for them. Because I think that's one of the one of the best things you can do for somebody that's battling with that suicidal ideation, which I know all of us do. Well, yeah, like I, I think I text you a bit yesterday. I think I this weekend I, I have a client of mine slash friend because I often become friends with my clients <laughs> and I've become very close with her and her mom. I do both their hair and the they've been going through a lot of things. They're about to be homeless because their house oh, got man. sold out from under them, their renters, and they were given very short notice to relocate. They just have a lot of things going wrong. And on Saturday, her car broke down and she had texted me while I was still at work. And I didn't see the text until two hours later asking for a jump 
by the time I got to where she was, she had already had the car towed because it wasn't taking a jump. I guess someone else was able Mm -hmm. to come through in a more timely fashion. But she texts me. So after that, I figured, okay, things are okay right now. I went home. I text her, let her know that I'd shown up, but she wasn't there. And I came home and Saturday is the night that I lost Jordan. So I usually am under the influence of alcohol or weed or something on Saturday nights to help my mind take a break. And so I got home and I was settling in and then she was messaging me and I was responding. She was telling me about the situation with her car. And then she messaged me that she was done. She was done. She was done struggling. She was done doing life. And I was I at first I'm like tomorrow will be better or different at least not better you never know if it's going to be better but tomorrow will be different and everything and she's no you're not understanding I'm done and so I immediately was like oh shit she lives not far but I was not in any situation to be driving Mm -hmm. and so I immediately contacted her mom who lives with her and I just text her your daughter's in crisis you need to be with her and uh, mom didn't answer right away so I called her and she was oblivious she's oh no I know she had a rough day but she was laughing and everything seemed fine and I'm like she's not fine you've lost people to suicide you know that they can be happy moments before I'm like she can't be alone right now and so mom reacted very emotionally as is normal and she ended up not being super helpful because her emotions got the best of her and Mm. the daughter texts me that she's like wrong move mom is not helping she's telling me all the happy reasons why I need to stick around and I need to stay for her. And so I text the mom back. I'm like, you're not helping. Please tell her to call me. And it wasn't that how mom reacted was incorrect. I understand her emotions taking over. But in that moment, that was not what was helpful. So I ended up calling um, my friend and I told her, I'm like, girl, I can't come to you. Otherwise, I'd hop in the car right now. But I'm not trying to catch a ticket for driving under the influence, but I can talk to you. And we ended up being on the phone for a couple hours and I did not Mm. talk her out of leaving the world. We actually started talking about all the best reasons why we should give up in life and (laughs) why life is just overwhelming and it's horrible. And we were laughing after a bit, we had ordered some food and I'm like, don't mind me, but I'm a little high and this mac and cheese smells amazing. So I'm going to eat and We were literally just talking about bad things, but we were laughing. And after a while, (laughs) she felt more relaxed. She felt more calm. And I told her either way, she shouldn't be alone. No one should leave the world alone. I'm like, but I told her very seriously. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you about all the happy tomorrows that you'd miss out on because right now you can't see that. We're just going to focus on tonight. And I'm let's just see how tomorrow rolls around. And with all the situation she's going through and her finances being tight, I can't help her in any of that. But what I could help her with, I could drive her to the store to pick up her smokes because (laughs) so I told her tomorrow late when I roll out of bed at 3 PM, you send me a message once you're up and I will take you to go get your smokes while your car is in the shop. And that's something I can do for you. And then, Mm. so we did do that. And while, after she got her smokes, I was like, do you want to just come hang out? 
I'm like, you're not allowed to talk shit about my messy house because I'm depressed. (laughs) And I'm like, you can judge it all you want, but I don't want to be lectured about it. And she's like, I don't care. And she came over and I'm like, we'll just chill. We'll watch some TV. We actually Mm. ended up watching Children of the Cult, the miniseries together. Oh, okay. And having discussions and we ordered some pizza. And because she was like, what about mom? Because her brother has some mental illness problems. And she's, I'm worried mom might be unsafe if he flies into a rage. And I said, you know what? Mom's old enough. Let her take care of herself today. And you take care of you today. Today is about you taking care of you. And so she took a little mini afternoon vacation at my house, not worrying about everyone else's problems for a day. Mom was safe through the night. I did. Once I had talked her to sleep the first night, I did text mom and tell her that she was safe and she was okay and that she should not feel bad for how she had reacted. It was totally understandable. And she just needed a different perspective that night. And yeah, we hung out. We had a great time. And even watching (laughs) Children of the Cult, which is a very good documentary and a little hard to watch, but I'm like, with you here with me. (laughs) It makes me feel better. And I can watch this now. And yeah, we had a great time. She unwinded and I am keeping in touch with her and because it's not one day and they're good. You need to stay in touch and continue. Doesn't mean pestering them every single moment of every single day, because you can go through a really good spell and be fine. And then another little thing just pushes you over that little line. And, but yeah, it, It was a great weekend. It felt great to be able to assist someone. And that's so great. What you were saying, Whisper, about with childhood trauma and stuff, not only are we so disconnected from our emotions, we don't even know not just how to ask, but what to ask for. We don't always know what is going to be helpful for us. So it's not even just about getting up the nerve to ask for help. It's knowing what would help. Because when you grow up in trauma and you don't have that connection with your emotions and what's helpful for you, you don't even know what to ask for. So having people show up and check in is helpful because you don't know what's going to stick for yourself. You don't know what's going to help for you. So yeah, having people come through and just check in is so very important. Mm -hmm. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's one of the best things you can do, really, just checking in on people because then they just feel cared about. They know you're thinking about them that way. And then for just even a brief second, you don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. And I'm very encouraged that your house is messy, too, because mine is, too. (laughs) (laughs) And then and the thing about about checking in with someone, especially if they are struggling with depression or suicidal ideation, is that sends them the message that they are this disease that they're suffering from this sickness that they're suffering from is seen as real and valid just like you would check in with somebody who's having a surgery and trying to get healed or someone who's got cancer you check in on those people Mm -hmm. it's the same exact thing and so to have that validated of yes i acknowledge that this is a sickness that can be just as serious and can be just as like lethal as some of the other big ones out there too It, it that can make just a huge world of difference yeah, to somebody. Exactly. Huge difference. If it helps you to understand what to do, 
I'll be like, what would I do if they had cancer? What would I do if they were dying of tuberculosis or something like that? You'd bring them soup or you'd go to their house and do their dishes or something like that. And those kind of things can be an actual lifesaver for somebody that's suicidal. It's, it's very difficult. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I doubt it though, but (laughs) very (laughs) difficult to keep up on things like that. Like the dishes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Comes a huge point of depression and difficulty. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden this pack of dishes that you just, I'll stand there and cry sometimes because I'm just like so overwhelmed by this they're just dishes in a sink. But for some reason to me, it's become this giant monster in my mind that I have to tackle. And it's takes me like two days of planning (laughs) before I can be like, okay, I got to do the dishes. But yeah, you have to mentally prepare yourself for little tasks. Yeah. This Mm -hmm. is something that we do commonly in our widow group is we do wins and woes and, Mm. and, Honestly, the win can be so small. And I I remember my very first phone call with them. I could not think of a win. It had been about six weeks since I lost Jordan and I could not think of anything good at all. I was barely showering. I hadn't changed my sheets yet. I hadn't done like self-care was I was just barely fumbling my way through existence. And the only win I could think of wasn't even something I'd done. It was just, I can now find all my chapstick because Jordan and I shared chapstick and he was rather forgetful and he would wash it in his pants pockets and they would melt and he would leave them all over the place and they'd get lost. And I'm like, now I can find my chapstick. I always have chapstick where I left it. That was the only win I had. And that was, and I was like, today, that's what it is. That yeah. is the only good thing is I can find chapstick. It's that small. It's that petty, but I'm going to take mm-hmm. it as a win. Oh, like gosh. the Absolutely. tiniest thing. Sometimes when you're in that pit of despair, you have to acknowledge that I washed one cup. I didn't wash the whole sink, but I washed one cup and that cup is clean. And I did that. And you have to give yourself credit sometimes for the very small things, because sometimes there's too much overwhelming bad. You have to just give yourself credit, even for the very small things. And that can help. Yes. Oh yeah. Hugely. It was one of my biggest breakthroughs was learning to celebrate those tiny little things. I talked to the bank today. That's I feel like getting some champagne or something because that was like a huge elephant on my back for a year, more than a year. And it sounds really silly to somebody else. Like, are you picked up the bank phone and talked to the bank for two minutes? Like whatever. But to (laughs) me, that was like, I can't even, I can't even describe to you (laughs) I don't even know how to feel. Like, I'm like, I'm so relieved, but I don't even know what to feel. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) I I think that's probably one of the biggest surprises that people don't, people can learn and that they don't understand is really, that is actually the smallest thing. When I was having like just some of the most ugliest of days, honestly, if someone had been like, Hey, (laughs) you want to go shopping with me? I'm going to the store that would have been everything. That would have been everything. And it's really just sometimes as simple as that. So you don't feel isolated. Yep, exactly. It's good things to start talking about because a lot of people, it's big, it's scary. Like someone like I have suicidal ideation. 
if if you've not experienced that or had anybody else that has experienced it, that's just super scary. Like that freaks most people out. And they're like, well, that's mental health. I can't do anything about that. I don't know what to say. So no, I'm not going to touch it. That's often not what's even being asked for. It's just, <laughs> yeah, like you said, just sitting beside somebody sometimes is all that's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is really great stuff. <laughs> I love I love that you your your widow group has like the winds and <laughs> yeah, oftentimes the there's That's more so woes than winds, but we and sometimes you only have one and you can't think of the other. I've had weeks where I've had only winds and I can't think of a negative other than he's still gone and that's a constant woe yeah. that's always there, but for some reason, September has been a really hard month. We both really like the fall. So as the weather cools off, it's just a very strong reminder that he's gone. I don't really know everything that sets me off yet because it's only been um, 15 months, actually, as of yesterday. And so mm -hmm. I'm still learning what things are bothersome to me and what things affect my mood and my headspace. and. For sure. But one thing that I do find is helpful is trying to focus some of that energy into something positive and helping raise awareness. It's not like I have some answer to everything, because if I did, my partner would still be here. But mm -hmm. I, I think having lost so many people so close to me, including a cousin and a brother and my partner, all to suicide on top of how many childhood friends have also been lost to suicide. I think I have a especially close view, plus having made attempts myself, I, yeah. I have a unique insight into some of this along with other people. I think it does help to understand that state of mind a lot better than all this toxic positivity stuff that people yeah. put out there trying to For help. Sure. And I'm also way more in tune when people are talking about things that I recognize are not the safest choices. And I'm like, are you not super worried about your well-being? Because you're sounding like you're entertaining some things that could be harmful to you. Sometimes being alert and aware to things, if someone's activities start shifting, they start doing things that are a little unsafe. It's not a bad idea to ask unless you're going to be judgy about it, because if you <laughs> get all you better not be blah, 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 then that's a good way to get yourself locked out. They will not tell mm -hmm. you in the future if you're going to jump down their throat. <laughs> but if you can come at them with some understanding and some kindness, they might let you in and actually let you be helpful. For sure. You don't really understand what's going on with your mental health until you start learning about it. Like back yeah. when I was just self-medicating and not really actually thinking or working on my mental health at all, I didn't even know what was going on in my head. I didn't even mm -hmm. understand it. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it until I actually went and got a mental health diagnosis. And then I started paying attention. And that was like, 10 years after I left the cult. And it's only been in the last few years that I've really started to understand basically that your brain is not you. To me, that was one of the biggest things. Like I was like, wait a minute, what? 
Like <laughs> those thoughts and stuff, that's not coming from me. That's coming yeah. from my experiences and the way that my brain processes them and my brain trying to protect me and keep me from it happening again. And then I was like, oh my holy Lord in heaven. I don't know. I can't even explain what a huge thing that was just like from that day on, I understood that I could control my thoughts. Basically, I'd say that my brain is a naughty child. It's just <laughs> a naughty little child. Like my inner child has complete control of my brain, basically. And once I learned that way, like, oh, my brain is a naughty child and I just need to love it and discipline it. And then it's going to be good. It can be good. And that was like, yeah, massively, <laughs> massively huge. The day that I understood that. And I remember I told it to my daughter last week. I'm like, you are not your thoughts. She's like, what? Like, yeah, your brain isn't you. The thoughts that come into your head, that is not you. That's your brain. And you can decide, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to entertain it. Emotions only last for 90 seconds. Just get through those 90 seconds. Yep. You're going to be okay. And feel it too. Allow yourself to feel your feelings. To me, that was another massive thing. Wait a minute. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be all of these things. And yeah. you shouldn't just push it away because when you push it away, it just gets all piled up. And then eventually huge explosion, but that doesn't have to happen. Actually, I find that insight really helpful because I, I don't know if this is the proper use of ironically, but Saturday was the day that technically early Sunday morning, but Saturday was the day Jordan died. And that afternoon at work, a coworker asked him, how are you? normal greeting mm -hmm. question but he was like automatically said fine and they asked him again no for real how are you and he told me about this when he got home and he was like I didn't know what to say I didn't mm -hmm. know how I was and he didn't understand fully what headspace he was in I don't mm -hmm. think he realized how close to death he was and mm -hmm. I literally was away for him for not even 10 minutes and it was too late to save him. And I don't think he knew. And this is the thing with mental health is we are just scratching the surface about how the brain works. Yeah. We know how the heart works, how the lungs work, the skin, like we know the whole body quite well. We can, you know, artificially do so much for everything, but the brain is so complex. Yeah. And the thing that I find I know there's apprehension medical care in regards to mental health is very limited yeah. so it's not a cure-all but understanding better how your mind functions like the day I got my diagnosis for ADHD I could not stop smiling the whole drive home <laughs> because I'm like okay I am a little crazy I am a little kooky I'm plenty I'm an oddball I just am but Part of that is the way my brain functions. I function mm. at this fast pace. I function just in this different way. It's just that my brain works a little differently. And yeah. understanding that and learning that about myself was so helpful. Mm. And so getting medical help for mental health issues isn't a perfect solution. 
because we are still learning. The medical community is doing better, but it still has a long ways to go before we fully, well, if we ever understand the brain completely. But having a better understanding of your brain, and like you were saying, Jemima, with my brain is not me, and I can control it, and I can choose to not listen to some of the crazy it's putting out there because every other organ in the body, it can fail and malfunction. And in the widow group, we talk about how suicide is like a heart attack of the brain, the brain. It just, Mm -hmm. it malfunctions in that moment. And this is why suicide prevention is something that is a little problematic for a lot of us who have lost people to suicide, because you cannot always prevent it. You could do all the right things and you can't stop what's going to happen because, well, the brain is just too complex for that. However, there are a lot of things you can do that can help and raising awareness and talking about really uncomfortable things in regards to the brain and things that could be helpful can help people at least momentarily reconsider. And when you understand why your brain is functioning differently, it can help you be less intimidated. We're always more afraid of the unknown. And if we don't understand what our brain is doing to us, that's really scary. And if you wrap that up with depression and whatever else you got going on, it just becomes very overwhelming and your brain just is like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. All of that just to say that there is so much complexity here. Oh, for sure. It's funny. I just actually read something last night that speaks to what, what both of you are talking about, whether it's your thoughts that you're struggling with, whether it's your depression, whether it's your suicidal ideation, whatever it might be that you struggle with on a fairly regular or difficult basis, name it a name. And once you do that, not only do you disengage it from yourself, that is not my identity, that is George, that also makes it a lot easier to talk about it with the people that are close to in your life. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm really struggling. George is being an idiot today. Something just as simple as that, and it helps make those big conversations so much less scary. And it also helps the person who's struggling with whatever it may be to see it from, yes, you're not my thoughts, to a separate entity. So it was really interesting. I haven't tried, I'm not saying I've tried it, but I just read it last night. I was like, that is, that I've never heard of that. And that is really amazing, actually, to think about that. I actually really like that. I might have (laughs) to come up with a name. Yeah. Really an interesting idea. Very, yeah. Some of these things you're just like, why didn't I think about a hundred years ago? Some of these things you hear them and you're just like, oh my God, duh. And then it seems so simple, but you don't know until someone kind of points it out to you or you read it, or sometimes you come to the realization yourself, but more often than not, it's from someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, but, and and I know this is something that all of us are familiar with, not only can your brain often overwhelm you so that you can't pull out feelings from one way or another. But sometimes it's also the circumstances that you're in. And if you are in some type of place where you are like a Maslow's 
you know, triangle of, of hierarchy. If you are on that level where you're just like, I'm just in complete survival mode. I'm just trying to figure out how to get food. I'm just trying to figure out how to get transportation or have a roof over my head. If you are in any of those type of spaces in your life, you're not going to be able to focus on anything else. Being able to start recognizing it. and working on your mental health does take a certain foundation. Like you need some kind of like stability or foundation before you can get very far. You might be aware of what's going on, but you usually can't get very far. And that's why I think a lot of people don't end up really being able to look at things and start working on things until later on in their lives, especially if you're a survivor and you've gotten out of a difficult situation, whether it's trafficking or calls or domestic violence, and you're having to start life all over again. It's a very difficult thing. You've got survival mode going on with, oh my God, like I got to fix my brain too. So. Yeah. 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 It's one of the big things I try to stress is that mental Wellness is physical wellness. If you're having trouble breathing, you use an inhaler. If you are having trouble seeing, you get glasses. There's a lot of things that we do. If you break a bone, you go get a cast or a splint or whatever they use these days. People see those and they recognize it as this is an actual health problem. But mental health is also a health problem. And it mm -hmm. should be acknowledged and it should be properly cared for. And luckily, it seems like society as a whole is starting to see that I think 2020 and COVID and all that really brought a lot of mental illness things to the forefront. And yeah, I think people are starting to pay attention and also recognizing just how severely damaged people can come out of severe childhood trauma. And when people say, you turned out okay. And I'm like, but did I though? Did I really? On the outward appearances, you can fake it till you make it. But I'm like, there's still so much that we deal with. And the more we talk about mental health and stuff, I think people will start to recognize more and more that it is something that is valid and it is something that needs to be paid attention to. And we need to do better, whether we're friends, whether we're doing it for ourselves as a society as a whole, need to do better because there are people that really need some help and yeah. including ourselves <laughs> that, and we need to recognize it. And yeah, absolutely. Very much. Yes. You're very amazing. Miss Sarah. <laughs> I don't think so. I muddle through, I muddle through so much. I, and I draw crazy shit and I <laughs> smoke weed and cigarettes and Oh, come I on. Don't, I don't drink alone, though. That is one thing I'm very mindful of. I don't drink alone because alcohol, while it's a great escape, it's also a depressant. And so if you're not in the best headspace, yeah. yeah, I make sure I have someone with me. So if I do put myself into a more depressed state by drinking, that I have someone there to help add a little a little light and a little support because I'm doing my best to not exit the world. My partner really mm -hmm. believed that I had something to give back to society, that it was worthwhile for me to continue existing in the world. So I'm doing my best to believe as he did in myself. And yeah, it's not easy, but I'm trying. Yeah, I totally agree with you. There is no one size fits all, really. Whatever we do to survive. My big thing is so long as it doesn't bleed onto others and harm other people, so long as it's something that is a coping mechanism for yourself, I really don't have a problem with it. I'm a very big fan of doing what helps you get through your day. 
it's when it starts bleeding into other people and hurting other people and affecting them that then maybe you might need to reconsider what your coping mechanism is. But yeah. Yeah. Or if it destroys your body also. Yes. Mm. Like meth and heroin. Cause people are, I've heard people say, Oh, that's my medicine. I'm like, no dude, no, <laughs> that, you, it, it feels like medicine. It does. Trust me. I get it. I I've been there, done that, got more than a t-shirt. It feels medicinal while you're in it. But once you stop and take a look at yourself from the outside and realize what you're actually doing, you're like, okay, I'm not really self-medicating. I'm just numbing the pain so that mm. I don't have to think about it. It's not yeah. actually helping me. They say you teach what you need to learn, right? I think for me, this whole hour that we spent has been very motivational and makes me feel like there is hope and yeah. like we can learn to live a good and happy life. There is yes. hope after whatever trauma you've gone through, sure. whether you lose your partner or grew up in a cult or had an abusive childhood, or it could have been anything. Car accidents are very traumatic. Some of my trauma came from car accidents. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, there's always hope. Where there's life, there's hope. 100%. And the key thing, at least for me, has been learning to take it all in little steps. If you can't even look forward into next month, don't do it. Or even next week. And we Jemima and I, we've talked about that before where we had times where we got to our, in our lives where we were like, okay, and tomorrow I'm going to, I'm checking out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we would just say, okay, tomorrow I'm doing it. And that there were some times that just that were what was getting, you know, me through from one day to the next. So definitely give yourself a lot of credit for any type of little celebration that you have, the little wins. They're just so important, super important. Yeah. Celebrate yourself because you're amazing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. And again, I do want to send my condolences for your losses, but thank you so much for talking with us about it and just sharing some of the things that you've experienced and what you've sort of learned along the way. It it really makes a big difference. And yeah, September is Suicide Awareness Month. Very apropos. (laughs) Anything related to depression and suicide awareness is something that I have been passionate about for a long time. Once I started noticing just how many of us we lost that way, and then it has become an even more intensely near and dear to my heart since losing two people very close to me two months apart in 2020. And I, it's just something that Yeah, it's just something that really needs to be discussed more and more. There are so many people in the world that struggle and suffer, and a lot of them do it in silence and don't reach out and don't ask for help and don't even know how to get help if they could. And yeah, it needs to be just as a society, we need to do better. The medical field is working on it. That needs a good kick in the pants. And even just as friends, we just all need to be more mindful. I think sometimes we get really wrapped up with whatever we're personally going through and we don't take a minute to check in with other people. And then when those people are gone, we're like, oh no, where did they go? What happened? We just need to show up, 
showing up is so important. Showing up for friends, showing up for people who need help, showing up is really important. That show up and follow through. And yeah, it's just really important. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody that's lost somebody or uh, had some sort of big, difficult event in their life, check in on them. Just shoot them a text or give them a call. You could be the difference between them being alive and them not being alive. It doesn't matter how they act on the outside. Everybody needs somebody to be there for them. Everybody needs somebody to see them so that they feel understood and validated. And so, yeah, anybody that knows somebody, just give them a check-in. Check in on them. See how they're doing. And if they tell you they're fine, ask them again, because they're probably not. (laughs) Tell them what you really want to know. Say, I I really want to know how you're doing. I'm not asking you to tell me you're fine, because I know you're not fine. So please let me be there for you. For sure. One of the things that is very common through everyone who struggles with suicidal ideation is that belief that people are going to be better off without me. That's a big one. People are going to be better off without me. And so just sometimes someone that's struggling, if you can just let them know what they mean to you and how much you would not want to lose them. Yeah. That can really make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly how I felt when I was going through my biggest like time of where I was actually making plans to kill my whole family because I thought first it was the world will be better off without me. And then I was like, oh, but they won't. So I'll just take them with me. (laughs) I mean, I had it all rationalized in my mind why it was the best thing to do. And I had a whole plan. I had actually had the materials. (laughs) I had everything ready and set up. If my daughter hadn't gone and spent the night at her friend's house, I honestly, I don't think any of us would be here today because I was ready to do that. I was, I was, I was there. (laughs) Yeah. That is exactly how you feel, but that's not the case. That's not the case. And even if you don't have close for family or friends, somebody in the world is being affected by you and by the fact that you're living and the fact that you're just there. You don't have to be a huge influencer on Instagram or something like that to be important. Yeah, a single loss, it ripples out to so many people that you aren't even aware of. And one other thing I would add is it it is really good to check in on people when you know that they're recently going through something. But like at this stage right now, he died 15 months ago. And a lot of the people that checked in on me regularly early on no longer do. People assume that now that there's the saying that time heals all wounds <laughs> and it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. We all came from a cult. How healed are we from our past? It affects us every single day and yeah. we'll still have days where our past from however many years ago it's been since it was part of our lives will still affect us and bring us to a point where we are close to giving up. And that's 20 plus years ago. So no matter how far away from the trauma you get, it doesn't mean that you can't still have a bad day. And Mm -hmm. I'm 
with this new loss that I had, I'm like, I should be better. It's been over a year. And in a lot of ways, I am functioning better. But it's not that it's an easier load to carry. I'm just acclimating to carrying it. I'm getting used to this level of pain. It's not that the pain has lessened. I miss him just as much today as the day that I found him and tried to save him. It hurts just as bad. And just because time has passed and you think the person is doing better from whatever it was, it doesn't hurt to still check in on people. So many people hide behind their glossy pictures on their social media and they hide how they're actually doing because that's just how our society works. But yeah, it doesn't hurt to still check in on people no matter how much time has passed. Yes, you're totally right. Like I always say, grief is like a dumbbell. You get to the gym on the first day and you have to pick up this 200 pound thing and you're like, oh, hell no, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to carry that. You can't even budge it. After a while of exercise and working out, eventually you can move it a little and then eventually you can pick it up and carry it. The dumbbell doesn't change. The weight doesn't change. The grief does not change but you learn to live with it. You learn that it's part of you and it's always going to be part of you. And you, you learn that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to mourn the people that are gone. It's, it's not, it's actually a good thing to remember them. One other thing I will definitely add about losing someone is it's okay to say their name People avoid saying their name because they think they're going to remind you of them and bring them back up. And for someone who has lost someone very close to me, people avoiding saying his name, it feels like they're trying to forget him. And don't worry, you're never reminding me of him. I'm constantly thinking of him. It's not going to switch my mood. He's constantly there in the back of my mind, no matter what I'm doing. So you can't remind me of him. He's already there. And they say you die two deaths. One is the physical death. And the second is when the last person who remembers you speaks your name. So it is one way to honor and remember people who have passed is by saying their name, telling their stories and taking the bits that the way that they influence your life, continuing that on. Like my partner had so much trust and belief in me. And I am really trying to hold that and continue on with that same trust and that same belief in myself, because it's what he would want. And by incorporating that into who I am, it is my way of honoring him and what he impressed upon me while he was here. And that makes his life meaningful because he is continuing to help me, even though he's not here because of what he instilled in me. And so it is not wrong to mention the name of someone who's gone. It's not wrong to tell a funny story or a sad story or whatever about that person because it continues on their legacy. And that's the path to immortality is people remembering you and the impression that you left on the world. Because no one's an island. We all have ripple effect. And if you can affect the people that you leave behind and we can continue on, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to continue in the path that Jordan started me on. And that's one way that he continues to live on. Yes, absolutely. 
I heard that same thing a few weeks ago. And yeah, that made a huge difference to me. Really good stuff. Great points and great things. Fabulous. Yes, for sure. Wowzers. (laughs) (laughs) It's a doozy. How do we even wrap this up? How do you put all of this? (laughs) How do you even just... Just yeah, don't I would say the the main thing that should be stressed in regards to depression and suicide is what Whisper said earlier. Just try to stick around till tomorrow. Yep. You don't have to worry about a week, a year, anything like that, or how Jemima you said it, the emotions last 90 seconds. Just try to wait out those 90 seconds. If you can't wait till tomorrow, wait the 90 seconds and then try waiting another 90 seconds. And sometimes you got to just take your time frame down real small and just put it off. You can always leave tomorrow. And in the meantime, maybe something will come through and make life different in a way that you're capable of staying. There's no promises of better, but maybe different that it becomes manageable. Yeah, absolutely. This has been so fabulous. Sarah, yeah, it's been wonderful. This Thank was you. great. Thanks for having me. Seriously, <laughs> this has been a great chat. It doesn't yes. even feel like a podcast. It just feels like a chat with friends. Yes. Sometimes when you are in the thick of it yourself, reaching out and helping someone else is helpful for you as well. So yep. it's not a purely unselfish act. It does mirror back and help you as well. Man, I felt so good when I was able to help that friend this weekend. I'm like, oh my God, this feels amazing just to be able to help someone. I'm like, this is awesome. And yeah, it lifted my mood and my spirits as well. And that wasn't my motivation, but that was the result. And yeah, it's very healing to help others heal, I think, which is probably why we're all speaking out. Because it helps heal us too. Yep, absolutely. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar.